and online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is July the 2nd, 2013. Tonight on TCM, that's Turner Classic Movies on the TV, there will be a screening of Devotion. It's supposed to be a movie about the Bronte sisters. Now, I plan to watch it without wincing because <laughs> Hollywood in the 1940s was was surreal. You know how that is. Uh, this movie, Devotion, came out in 1946. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I don't think that the filmmakers were familiar with Yorkshire in the mid-19th century. Uh, <laughs> at the same time, uh, they make no claim to biography. Uh, when I saw this movie as a teenager, I was a little confused. It has taken me a lifetime to realize that a movie can only tell us, you know, uh, who the people were who made it. You know, it's an impression. Uh, the time and place. Uh, I think that Hollywood's take on Victorian literature is uh, <laughs> is very revealing. Uh, you know, Orson Welles in Jane Eyre and uh, Laurence Olivier uh, as Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights, Demon Lovers. I love that cape on Orson Welles. That's what the people in Hollywood thought that it was about. Uh, Byron, I think, would be their image. Uh, the Bronte sisters were crazy about Byron. It's true. Uh, now, their books are, of course, some of my sacred texts. Uh, I'm a recovering English teacher, and when I got my master's, I used the Brontes uh, for part of my thesis. I also used Gertrude Stein and Anais Nin and who knows. Uh, I try to get the most disparate uh, women I could find. You know, one contradicts the other. I wanted people to understand that, uh, you, you know, <laughs> there is no such thing as women's writing. Women are as various uh, in their writings as men are, of course. Anyway, uh, what I tried to find when I studied these books long ago, uh, I wanted to figure out 
how these writers influenced today's women writers and today's male writers. Uh, I think history is the spine of literature. Uh, I think of literature as the history or the evolution of love, of human consciousness, all that good stuff. Our time, that is the 21st century, is not an age of loving literature. Passion and pain are somewhat out of date. At least personal passion and personal hate. It seems to be, what is that, maybe it's politically correct not to be too too personal, to pay too much attention to oneself. Most of our pain seems to be global. Anyway, in this Hollywood film, Devotion, uh, it's Emily Bronte who is portrayed as the terminal romantic uh I would give that label to Charlotte Bronte, with some reservations, of course. Emily's romance, her great passion, was for the Chthonic gods. She found them out on the moors, you remember. It is a pagan world, kind of like Thomas Hardy's. Anyway, Emily Bronte died at the age of 29, so she really didn't have time to be anything but uh, herself. And uh, she was a powerhouse. In the movie, Emily Bronte is played by Ida Lupino, an underrated actor who was at one time the only woman directing films in Hollywood. Uh, very hardworking, self-effacing. She directed more movies than any other woman director, I think, to date. She's the she's the number one. Not that anybody keeps track of those things anymore. Charlotte Bronte is played by Olivia de Havilland. You remember Olivia. She was Melanie in Gone with the Wind. Uh, Branwell, the tragic, dissolute brother, was played by Arthur, is played by Arthur Kennedy. Uh, he, he tries valiantly uh, to do what he, well, he, he just doesn't look frail, you know. He looks kind of kind of normal. Anyway, uh, I think that maybe Branwell needs to be a little bit more neurotic. Uh, I think I, I guess I guess I could say that Arthur Kennedy is a decent alcoholic. Uh, actually, it was the opium that did the job. Uh, in reality, the um, is it not the demon lover? But the the main man is Paul Henry. He plays that curate. Uh, I guess he's based on an Irishman. Uh, his name was Arthur Nichols. He married Charlotte Bronte when all the other siblings were dead. And Charlotte died, I think, uh, she's 39, her late 30s. She died of a pregnancy. Anyway, uh, I wanted to tell you about the Brontes on the chance that you think that they're just some dead white Victorians with nothing to offer us here in the 21st century. Uh, I am of opinion that we very much need the works of the older writers, you know, the classics in this age when the, the death of the heart is the most popular theme, it seems to be the fashion, uh, surrounded by considerable darkness. Surely we are due for a swing in the opposite direction. Uh, Charlotte Bronte wrote, 
nothing refines like affection. It seems we're out of practice. The Brontes were not privileged women, and they certainly were not, uh, what is that, uh, classes. They were extremely poor. Poverty helped kill them. And bought their uh, writing paper two sheets at a time. Uh, TB was also a big help. Uh, poverty for clergymen was uh, a given. It's genteel poverty, they called it. Uh, so strange. The women chosen to play the heroines in the movies, you know, in Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre, were were uh, Hollywood constructs. Uh, Kathy, the young woman who was in love with the Moors in Wuthering Heights, was played by Merle Oberon. Merle Oberon is um, an East Indian. She's half English, half East Indian. She was an exotic Joan Fontaine, the comely Joan Fontaine, uh, played Jane Eyre. Joan Fontaine was not a plain at all, not a plain Jane. Anyway, the critics tended to uh, sneer at some of these, some of these, uh, some of these writers. I think, I think when I first, when I first started to study them, I was astounded at the what is it? I guess you call it the attitude. Uh, they kept talking about the wispy uh, daydreams, the uh, sexual fantasies of these little spinsters, you know, that sort of thing. And that has changed, but not a lot. Not a lot. It's still out there. Uh, what I love about Emily, I wanted to try to read you several of her poems about living under a tyrant. I'll let you imagine who that might have been. His name was Patrick Bronte. Uh, maybe he was a snob. His uh, name was spelled B-R-U-N-T-Y. He was Irish. Uh, and, of course, he changed it to Bronte. B-R-O-N-T-E-S. He was a, um, well, not, but he was a commoner, I think we would call it. He, he became a school teacher. So, he was trying to uh, rise from one social class to another, but he pretty well got wiped out by uh, a marriage that produced so many children that his wife died. Oh, she was, uh, I think, six babies, seven, anyway, one right after the other, and uh, the two oldest girls died at a boarding school. Anyway, I just want to take some time today to read to you about uh, the history of these women. Uh, I want to be sure and add, get in here, the stuff about the the climate, the uh, unhealthy village they lived in. They really lived under what I would call hideous conditions. Uh, it's impossible to synthesize my thoughts on the Brontes. Uh, I'm always trying to mean something. They were Celtic colossi. You know, Charlotte was about four foot nine. I catch glimpses of their haunted faces at the windows of that gray parsonage. Parsonage was filled with Anglican angst, alcoholism, 
neurasthenia, isolationism, and what Charlotte herself calls barbarism. <laughs> I remember somebody said that the Anglicans, yes, God's frozen people. <laughs> Once in a dream, I was talking to Charlotte about the hot chocolate desire in her poems and novels, and I demanded to know if she was orgasmic. Mm-hmm. Really too rude a question. Uh, suddenly, Emily appeared. She was a fury. She threw a great tomato at my head. I was terrified at first, but then she stopped and took another tomato in her hand and sliced it very fine. She threw the center slice right smack in my face. It covered me with a blood-red cape. The seeds turned to jewels and shone, shone like moonstones in the dark. I know exactly what those women would think of me. Anyway, the Bronte sisters, Charlotte, Emily, and Anne, are fundamental touchstones for women like me who imagine, dream that we can transcend our lives through art. Under the most appalling difficulties... These women strove relentlessly to create order out of chaos. Now, what's so special about them, of course, is that they pulled it off. Uh, who were these women? Why should we care about them? They died so young. They were not prolific. Uh, <laughs> I remember when I proposed to include Emily Bronte just as poet... You know, excluding her only novel, Wuthering Heights. Uh, I wanted to use her as one of my major authors to be studied for my orals exam for the M.A. Uh, I was informed by the academic powers that be, let's see, that was the mid-70s, that I might use the complete works of all three sisters Bronte and that such a study would constitute one major author. I could not help but think of Virginia Woolf's reference in a room of one's own to those professor, yes, that professor with a measuring rod up his sleeve. I care about the Brontes because their visionary genius, uh, does it, got me through my girlhood, my adolescence. I regret that they were at times exhausted by their efforts to play the role Virginia Woolf calls the angel in the house. In particular, this role was anathema to Emily Bronte, who was more attached than all the others to home, to the Moors, and to her own sacred convictions, right? Uh, Carl Jung used to say that women who had a powerful animus that is, inner father, right, inner male, that uh, they tended to have overwhelming sacred convictions and there wasn't anything you could do to talk them out of it. Other people just said she was uh, schizophrenic. Anyway, Emily was a Celtic seer. She worshipped those Chthonic gods, the earth gods. She did live the outward life of a Victorian Christian uh but her heart was completely heathen. She was a heathen on the heath. I like that, yes. 
The dictionary tells me that a heathen originally meant one who lived on the heath. That is to say, who lived in the country. In December of 1838, Emily Bronte wrote, Come, sit down on this sunny stone. Tis wintry light or flowerless moors. But sit, for we are all alone. The purple heather of Emily Bronte is the same symbol of liberty and ecstasy today that it was in her lifetime. In 1841, she wrote, Leave the heart that now I bear and give me liberty. That was seven years before her death. Let's go dust the graves right first. There was the father, Patrick Bronte, born on St. Patrick's Day, 1777. He was a native of County Down. <laughs> he was bog Irish. Uh, that is to say he was a farmer peasant rather than what some people call lace curtain Irish or landed gentry. Now, uh, he opened his school at the age of 16, so he must have had uh, something going for him, quite a bit of drive. He became a tutor. He proceeded to St. John's College, Cambridge in 1802, where he obtained a B.A. degree and a curacy in Essex. He finally settled in Yorkshire. <laughs> Elizabeth Gaskell's famous biography, uh, The Life of Charlotte Bronte, was published in 1857. And this is the way she describes Mr. Bronte. She says, He has now no trace of his Irish origin remaining in his speech. He never could have shown his Celtic descent in the straight Greek lines and long oval of his face. Oh, my, oh, my. Anyway, Mrs. Gaskell's biography comes highly recommended. There have been several new ones, and they are very disappointing to me. Some of them do have a little more detail. The biographers have... Uh, scraped around, you know, and found a few things. But basically, Elizabeth Gaskell's book is the one to start with. She was a contemporary of Charlotte Bronte's. And so, of course, she she was fairly um, diplomatic. She certainly didn't want to write too much about the uh, husband and the father. They were still living after Charlotte's death when she wrote The, uh, the Life Back in 1857, let's see. The deaths of all the other children uh, were, what is it, I guess, overpowering for the father. However, Mrs. Gaskell did meet him. Uh, and when she did, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think, he would would have been... Uh, well, he lived to be 80, 80-something. 80 he kept wrapping something around his throat cloth, I see in the pictures, trying to keep away sore throats. And uh, apparently that served him well because he lived to be quite old. Charlotte was living alone with her father when she married. Uh, Mrs. Gaskell came to visit and... Uh, the father only joined the two women at tea. He did that as an honor 
for the guest. Uh, Mrs. Gaskell writes, what he does with himself through the day, I cannot imagine. Um, she adds, uh, he talked at her sometimes, speaking of the way he addressed his daughter. She writes, Mr. Bronte bears a great fancy for firearms of all kinds. This little deadly pistol sitting down to breakfast with us every morning. She notes that Mr. Bronte never goes anywhere without a loaded gun. <laughs> I think of Emily Dickinson's line, My life had stood a loaded gun. Mrs. Gaskell concludes, that the father was very polite and agreeable to me, paying rather elaborate, old-fashioned compliments, but I was sadly afraid of him in my inmost soul, for I caught a glare of his stern eyes over his spectacles at Miss Bronte once or twice, which made me know my man. Let me quote for you from a poem written by Emily Bronte in 1845. The poem is called The Prisoner, and Emily Bronte writes, My master's voice is low, his aspect bland and kind, but hard as hard as flint, the soul that lurks behind, and I am rough and rude, yet not more rough to see than is the hidden ghost it has its home in me. She goes on to write a description of a woman called the prisoner, right? About her lips there played a smile of almost scorn. My friend, she gently said, you have not heard me mourn when you, my kindred's lives, my lost life can restore. Then may I weep and sue, but never friend before. Still let my tyrants know I am not doomed to wear, year after year in gloom and desolate despair, a messenger of hope comes every night to me and offers for short life, eternal liberty. She ends this poem with these lines. She ceased to speak, and we unanswering turned to go. We had no further power to work the captive woe. Her cheek, her gleaming eye, declared that man had given a sentence unapproved and overruled by heaven. Emily is always writing about freedom, about liberty, and about escape. Uh-huh. Uh yes, the spells that bind her. She is, of course, talking about the patriarchal pressures under which she lives. Um, all she did was try to get away, go out on the moors, and Hang out with the Chthonic gods. Uh, Mrs. Gaskell writes letters to friends saying she believed Mr. Bronte should never have married. He was, she writes, apparently much in love with his wife, Maria Branwell, when he was a young, red-haired Irishman. 
flushed with ambition and a pal of Lord Palmerston at Cambridge. The mother, Maria, is a pale figure as mother. She had borne six children in seven years when she died in 1821 at the age of 39. Patrick lived to be 85, dying in 1861. When Mrs. Gaskell wrote her biography, she was doubtless inhibited, yes, by the fact that Mr. Bronte still lived. Here's an extract from a letter. Let's see. Here's a letter that Mrs. Gaskell put in the book, yes. Uh, a friend of Charlotte's, Mary Taylor, writes to Mrs. Gaskell from New Zealand in 1857. She's read The, uh, the Life of Charlotte Bronte and... She's writing to congratulate Mrs. Gaskell. She says, your book is a perfect success. Gives a true picture of a melancholy life. And you have practically answered my puzzle as to how you would give a true description of those around, meaning Branwell, the self-destructive brother, as well as the tyrannical father, Patrick. Uh Mary Taylor goes on to say, though not so gloomy as the truth, it is perhaps as much so as people will accept without calling it exaggerated and feeling the desire to doubt and contradict it. I have seen two reviews of it. One of them sums it up as a life of poverty and self-suppression. The other has nothing to the purpose at all. Neither of them seems to think it a strange or a wrong state of things, that a woman of first-rate talents, industry, and integrity should live all her life in a walking nightmare of poverty and self-suppression. I doubt whether any of them will. Uh, <laughs> Charlotte uh, could laughingly sign her letters, Charles Thunder. She certainly wasn't without a sense of humor. Yes, Bronte means thunder, you know. Charles Thunder. Currer Bell was her. Uh, that was the name she used when she first published. Uh, certainly nobody stole Charlotte's thunder unless it was Emily. That did not happen until long after both were dead. Virginia Woolf insists Emily was the greater artist because Emily left the eye out of her work. Like Jane Austen and William Shakespeare, it's hard to find the author in the work. Charlotte, on the other hand, often slips up. Yes, yes, indeed. She delivers a sermon right in the middle of the book, right? And it's all too personal. For my money, I don't care whether a writer hides behind her characters or speaks right through them, just so long as the writer makes me feel that she or he gives a damn about what is being said. Uh, an aside, I have to repeat that Virginia Woolf did finally grasp the notion that aesthetic distance is a patriarchal plot and that all that matters is that a writer write truly without altering a hair on the head of her vision, as Wolf puts it. Uh, anyway, uh, I guess I have to get back to the graves. I am running out of time, and I think I will uh, go back to this next week, because the upbringing of these children is so uh, 
so unusual and so grim that it certainly must have been the basis for these stories, these passions, these unbelievable books. Um, I think next time I will start with the section on the sanitary conditions in Hayworth. When I first read those, I was really shocked. I never dreamed uh, <laughs> things were worse out there in Haworth than they were in the worst slums in London. Next time we'll dig into that, uh, as well as the uh, the the ghosts, yes, the ghosts that haunt these women and still still haunt me. This has been Jennifer Stone. Tonight, you can see Devotion from 7 to 9 on Turner Classic Movies. Till next time, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Have you ever sensed a presence in an old house or felt like someone was in the room with you? Renowned psychic and medium Steve Osborne offers an explanation about all things paranormal at Ghost Stories, a benefit for Food for Thoughts Project Africa. Join Steve Saturday, July 20th at Food for Thought Antiques at 2701 Gravenstein Highway South in Sebastopol at 6 p.m. Steve will explain how to tell if there is a ghost present and will also describe the different types of ghosts. He'll leave plenty of time for questions. Tickets can be ordered at fstfoodbank.org or by calling Food for Thought at 707-887-1647. Thank you.